And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Okay, folks, let's deal with the elephant in the room right from the start. I work for Jeff Zucker at CNN, but that's not why I invited him on The Axe Files, which I think you'll agree when you hear this conversation may not have been the shrewdest career move of my life. I invited him because his life story is a hell of a yarn and his impact on broadcast journalism has been undeniable. We sat down and talked about all of this last week at CNN headquarters in New York. And yes, Zucker's long, intriguing relationship with Donald Trump did come up. Here's that conversation. Jeff Zucker, it's good to be with you. Happy to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Homestead, Florida, where the whole saga begins. And I'm guessing that the Zuckers didn't come over on the Mayflower. No, they did not. Uh, Actually, it wasn't just Homestead, Florida. I was born on Homestead Air Force Base, uh, which was, of course, later uh, demolished by Hurricane Andrew. So I was was an Air Force uh, kid. My dad... uh, my dad, he was a cardiologist. My dad was a cardiologist uh, in the Air Force. He came uh, down from New York, uh, met my mom, who was in, who, who grew up her whole life in Miami, which was very rare for somebody in that yeah. era. Uh, they met on a blind date down in Miami and, and ended up staying there. My dad got assigned to Homestead Air Force Base, uh, and that's where I was born, and that's where it all started. And where did the Zuckers come from originally? So the Zuckers originally came from somewhere in Eastern Europe that is probably... Poland now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somewhere on the Poland-Russia border that has probably changed five times. And when did they come over? Uh, so they came in the late 1800s, uh-huh. you know, before the turn of the century. And you uh, you were always a pugnacious little dude. Thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, the, you were a, a, a high school tennis player. Your coach said you wouldn't settle for being... The number two singles guy. You had to be the number one singles guy. Well, I didn't deserve to be the number two singles player. I was, I was worthy of being the number one player. And you got there by. Uh, listen, I played tennis my whole life, so so this is really was the most important thing in my life. Was I started playing tennis when I was six years old, and I played tennis every day, uh, and I uh, I was pretty good when I was young, um, and frankly. Uh, you know, I was pretty highly ranked in Florida as a as a young kid. What happened was, by the time we got to the 14s and 16 and unders, I didn't grow the way that everybody else grew. And so all these kids who I was beating when we were in the 10 and unders and 12 and unders and beginning of 14 and unders, they all, did grow. All of a sudden, start beating me, and I'm going, "What is going on here?" <laughs> and it's because they had grown and they could serve in volley. But having said that, I still was pretty good, and I played uh, number one on my high school tennis team, uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th grades. But it did allow you to uh, run for uh, class president every year under the, uh, uh, under the slogan, the little man with the big ideas. Well, as I mentioned, I didn't grow, and so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was still the little man. Um, yeah, so obviously... Uh, I'm just trying to get at, because one of the, the memes that runs through your entire life is you are a competitive person. Yes, and I'm, I'm a trying competitive to get, little guy. Yes, that's I'm ter- true. The little guy we can leave aside for okay, now. Well, but but what? where does that come from? Yeah, so it is true. 
Uh, it is totally fair. I have been competitive my whole life. I played uh, competitive tennis. I ran for you know student government office every year. I always wanted to uh, to win. And uh, where did that come from? You know, I mean, listen, I, I've lied down on the couch before and tried to analyze that and figure it out. You know, it's not like my parents put pressure on me or anything like that. It was just, I think that was the DNA I was born with. Uh, I, I, we played touch football, you know, on my block growing up. I wanted to win, okay? Uh, we, we played a tennis match. I wanted to win. I ran for student government president. I wanted to win. Um, so, you know, the, I, and I, that I has know. stayed with me my whole life, I acknowledge. Yeah, it served you pretty well. Yeah, listen, um, you know, I think <clears> the important <throat> thing actually has been about learning, uh, learning to lose with grace. Uh, because when I was young playing tennis, I had a pretty bad temper on the court. And uh, it was really, it was not very becoming. And uh, I have plenty of broken tennis rackets to prove it. And, um, and so it's one of the things that I think as you mature, uh, you learn, you know, it's great to win, but you also have to learn how to lose. And I think that took some time in my life. But, but listen, I'm as competitive today as I was when I was six years yeah, old playing tennis. I, I, want, I want to talk uh, a little bit later about, about losing because you've had, you've had like meteoric success. And, you've, and when you are up on that high wire and you fail then that's it. the whole world sees it and they love and, it and that's a, <laughs> yeah well i'm sure that's right but i, I want to talk to you about that in a second sure. but uh yeah this whole competitiveness thing struck me you your your first column your first all that jazz column for the harvard crimson right. was about house football at uh at harvard and you started it was off, yeah it was called frustrated jocks and first timers find house football more than just fun you are a very good researcher. Uh, yeah. There's no way I would ever remember that. <laughs> we probably have it for you if you want it. But, uh, <laughs> but you start off by saying everyone's little league coach preached that it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game that's important. And then you went on to say oh, I know that this I wasn't said. exactly the spirit of the house football right. league. And it, it struck me that you probably weren't one who bought into that. It's how you play the game. Uh, no, it's, it's much better to win. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 totally. I mean... Listen, I think the thing you learn over time is that it is also important how you play the game, but it's still better to win. It's still better to win. One other place you won was you got elected president of the Crimson. I did. So, yeah, listen, I, I went to Harvard uh, after high school in Miami. I went up to Harvard, and uh, I played freshman tennis, so I was still interested in tennis, but, but I realized I wasn't going to be able to play real college tennis, so I let that go. And I threw myself into the, to the college newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, and I covered sports my freshman year, which was a, a, a not a common route uh, to, to get to leadership uh, at the Crimson. Most people went through the news uh, area. I started in sports, and, um, but I worked my way up and I became the president of the Crimson. And, you know, uh, as some people have said, uh, it's been downhill ever since. Uh, that was the highlight of my life. But, you know, I, I've had other good highlights. But being so, the President Crimson was pretty exciting. So speaking of competitiveness, you were pissed when uh, Conan O'Brien stole your newspapers. He was the editor of the uh, Harvard Lampoon. Right. Thought it would be fun to steal a whole press run of the Harvard Crimson. And what did you do about that? So, look, you know... Uh, there was always a rivalry between the Crimson and the Lampoon, and uh, 
you know, the Lampoon was picking on us at this time, and they stole our uh, stole all our newspapers, <laughs> and uh, and we caught them, and uh, I called the Cambridge police. <laughs> And I asked, uh, I told not them, the campus police. The campus, the campus police, police were too genteel no, for you. No, I did not call the Harvard police. Uh-huh. I called the Cambridge police, <laughs> and I told them that I wanted to press charges. Well, was the FBI not available? Or? Well, you know, I mean, that was the next step. That was the next step if they didn't come quickly enough. But, but I called the Cambridge police, told them I wanted to press charges. You know, listen, listen, they want to play games with us. We're gonna. It's a competitive thing, right? We're gonna play right back. And uh, and so I asked them to arrest Conan O'Brien. And they did. They took him down to, you know, central booking. And I remember I got a call from the dean of students at the time at Harvard, Archie Epps, who has since passed away. And, and, he, and he said to me, Jeff, you don't really want to press charges against Conan O'Brien. And I responded, no, I, I do. I actually do. <laughs> now, of course, and I'm sure we'll probably get to it, Conan O'Brien comes back in my life uh, yes, at a later point. Exactly. But uh, it's a very rich story, yes. And so the, was the – you were rejected by Harvard Law School. That was – you did well. Now, was that your first big setback in life? I, were think, you? I think it was. Uh, it's um, – you know, look, I, I led a very charmed – life I had we talked about I had been president of my sophomore class junior class senior class in high school played number one on you the have siblings team. by the way I have a younger sister and was she also a super achiever um she she did was well she? and she was a really good athlete but I do think that uh I do think that I cast a long shadow in high school and that was a little tough for her in, mm-hmm. in all candor but um so I go to Harvard and uh I do incredibly well I become the president of the Harvard Crimson you know, like uh, like anybody who uh, isn't sure what they want to do with their life at that point, you apply to law school, and uh, so I applied to several law schools, uh, and I, and I applied to Harvard Law School, and I thought, you know, listen, I'm at Harvard, I've done well, and I'm president of the Crimson, I'm going to get in, and I didn't get in, and I I was stunned, and I remember crying on my bed uh, at Harvard senior year. I couldn't believe it. It was the first time that I really didn't get something I wanted. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And as I say now, I thank God every day I didn't get into Harvard. Yeah, it was probably the biggest break you ever thank got. Thank God. I say it all the time. And, and, you know, if I'd gotten in, I probably would have gone. And, uh, and so I thank God all the time. I also say that I'd like to apply now and see what happens uh, and see if I could get in. But, um, but no, listen, thank God I didn't uh, get in. I took a two-year deferral. I did get into several other law schools. I took a two-year deferral. Uh, from the University of Virginia, and the reason I did that from the University of Virginia Law School was because they were the only ones who offered a two-year deferral, and uh, needless to say, I never went. So. Because you got a chance to work for NBC as yeah. a researcher for the 1988 Olympics. Right, so so the, the day that I graduated from college, I got the call uh, from uh, NBC Sports offering me uh, the job as the Olympic researcher, which was really at the time in 1986, uh, you know, one of the, probably the best entry-level job in television. What I did was I uh, was able to travel the world at NBC's expense, doing all the background reporting on all the uh, athletes and 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 sports for the Seoul Olympics. And and you know, it was two and a half years, uh, an incredible experience. And then at the Olympics, you know, I worked with this guy who was the brand new uh, first-time announcer at the Olympics. A host of the Olympics, a guy 
was new to it named Bob Costas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that turned out to be a lifelong friendship that, that uh, was just fortuitous for both of us. And, uh, and so it was great. And by the way, what's interesting is, again, the way in for me, like it had been at the Crimson where I did sports and then moved and became the president, I started my career in sports and eventually moved to news. Let me ask you a question about that. You, this was really a reporting job in some ways. It was. Uh, and you, you've used reporting as a way into editing. I, I was a reporter yeah. when I started, and there was a definite division, division among the staff, among people who just want to be reporters, yeah. never wanted to be editors, and people who were on that track. You, you tend to the editorial and why? Why did you prefer that? Because you were in charge or because you, you could run the big picture? Well, you know, look, I, I think I liked both, both aspects of it, right? You know, I, I always loved writing, and I, I think I'm a pretty good writer. Uh, and so, and I liked writing. I, I liked reporting. Your mom was an English My teacher. My mom was an English teacher and debate coach, by uh, the way. By the way. Must have been an uh, interesting uh, at, dinner table. At my rival high school. Uh, by the way, so uh, so I always liked the writing and reporting, but you know I, I did always tend to want to then run the organization or, uh-huh. or be in charge of the Crimson or you know NBC uh, NBC wherever <laughs> wherever it ended up, and um, you know listen I I always have felt that being in charge of those organizations but having grown up in them gave me the perspective so that I understood what everybody's job was. And that I thought I was a better leader because I knew what their jobs were. You know, I did a podcast with Theo Epstein. Yeah. And Theo, you may know, was the editor. He was a sports editor of the right. Yale Daily News. Right. And he took a job as an intern with the Baltimore Orioles. And he was basically clipping things. And he said, I figured out that everybody, there's 20% of every job no one wants to do. And if you volunteer to do that 20%, you'll learn about a lot of different aspects of things. And... You'll make a lot of friends along the way. Well, I, I, I totally agree with that, and I feel that's what I did um, when I first went to the Today Show after the Olympics job. Uh, I ended up at the Today Show, and I was low man on the totem pole, and, and I did everything, and I did everything that nobody else wanted to do, and I pulled all-nighters all the time. And this was in an era when the Berlin Wall was falling and yeah. the tanks were rolling into Moscow and Noriega was captured. And, and so I was the one there overnight, the only one there doing all the work. And, you know, that uh, put me in good position, got me noticed and, and left me with a true understanding of all the jobs that needed to be done. At the Olympics, uh, Jane Pauley called you a, a walking fact machine yeah so so what happened was uh i was the olympic researcher and i was assigned to work on two shows the late night show with bob costas this first time host and the morning show uh with among other people jane Pauley. and jane uh had come obviously from the today show and was asked to do the olympics and she was scared to death because she knew nothing about sports nothing about the olympics and uh and i was there with her the whole time and uh and you know, she was uh, helped, a big proponent of you coming over to the Today help, Show. Helped her through the whole Olympics. At the end of the Olympics, she says, what are you going to do now? And I said, I have no idea. Because my two-year deferment from the University of Virginia Law School had already passed. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And she goes, well, I'd like you to come work on the Today Show with me. 
And I said, uh, 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 okay. And, uh, you know, I had never seen the Today Show uh, at this time, right? When you're in high school, you basically are gone before the Today Show comes up. Uh, in college, you sleep through the Today Show. <laughs> and in this job at the Olympics, I had been traveling the world and not paying attention to the Today Show. But it was a job, and it was Jane Pauley. Well, let me about television itself. You didn't you didn't know Bupkis about TV, other than probably having watched it, right? But uh, and were you were was what attracted to you yeah. you to TV? And had you thought of yourself as a print guy before? Yeah, that? I had always I had always thought of myself as a writer and a and a print guy. I worked for the Miami Herald when I was in high school. Uh, doing high school sports, or what uh, were you doing? I was doing like local, local, local neighborhood uh, reporting. Um, so I'd worked for the Miami Herald, uh, and and had written for my high school newspaper, written for my college newspaper. So again, if I didn't get the job, if I didn't get into law school and I didn't get the job at NBC, I wanted to go home and write for the Miami Herald. Mm -hmm. So I had always thought of myself uh, in that vein uh, as as a, as a print reporter. My first experience with television was I worked as an intern at the 1984 Olympics in, in Los Angeles for ABC Sports. And that's how I eventually ended up at NBC right. in 88. But I didn't really know much about television or how it worked. But I do remember in 84 at the Olympics in LA of sneaking a, a look into the control room and watching Rune Arledge uh, at work. And I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. And, uh, and so I was attracted to uh, television, even though I had always thought of myself as a print guy. Uh, and then, honestly... You thought I, it was cool because he was calling the shots. He was calling the shots, and it was like an orchestra. A control room that works in a live television aspect is like, a, is like an orchestra. And the executive producer is the conductor. And you're calling out the shots, and you're, and you're talking to the uh, anchors, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing to see. And eventually, that's what I ended up doing, and I loved it. And, and there's nowhere I love being more than in a control room for a big live event. You still do that. You still, I do. You still, I do. You're I do. still calling people, the shots. I do, and people, a lot of people don't understand uh, why you know, someone who's running uh, CNN... Uh, would want to also go into the control room on on the big election nights or big event nights, and uh, and and sit in the seat. And the reason is because I think there's nothing more exciting in television than live television on a big night. And you know, I think for many years it's what I did, and I I I loved it. Uh, I think that I am very good under pressure in a control room, and I think I understand story pretty well and so I think that you have to figure out what the story is at a moment's notice and I think all of those things are why I love being in a control room. So when you were a kid you first you were a field producer for Katie Couric. I was. Uh, and, at the uh, Today Show yeah. And, and so you were what 23, 24? Yeah I mean I was yeah 23, 24 years old when I was producing for Katie. And then uh not so long after that, you became the supervising producer for the Today Show. So now you're in the, you're in the room. In, yeah, and now I'm in the control room. And uh, so by the age of, you know, 24, 25, uh, I'm basically running the control room at the Today Show, which is absurd if you think about it. Um, but, and it's not like anybody ever taught me how to, you know, run a control room. I just like figured it out. Yeah, and uh, I, I appreciate that. I've never been trained for anything I've ever done. Right. It's like, uh, look, I think a lot of it is intuitive, and and you just you just learn how it works and you figure it out, 
and I think I did have a real, uh, you know, I think I, I had a real sense of uh, how to how to conduct that orchestra, and I and it turned out to be good, and I got really noticed uh, yeah. at, at that young age. And and by the time you're 25, you're the executive producer of the Today yeah, Show. Yeah, so I think it, it I think I turned 26 uh, when when I uh, slacker take over exactly. Yeah. Look, you know. Uh, uh, I was incredibly lucky and fortunate. Uh, I had worked incredibly hard. The Today Show was not doing very well at the time. Yes. And so they decided, well, let's just take a chance on, on this young guy. Now, I was very fortunate that the president of NBC News uh, was a gentleman named Michael Gartner. Former print guy. Former print guy. Pulitzer in Prize fact, winner. In fact, Pulitzer Prize winner, in fact, was the page one editor of the Wall Street Journal when he was 26. Mm-hmm. And so he had no compunction about asking a 26-year-old punk to, uh, to take over the Today Show. And he said something that always stayed with me, which was that, uh, you know, he thought uh, good things happen to young people um, because they're good. And it doesn't matter how old they are. And if you're good, you're good. And, uh, and he had the you know, good fortune of having run the Wall Street Journal page one at a very young age. And so he didn't hold my age against me yeah. the way others did. Yeah. And he gave me that opportunity. We should note that he ultimately went out to Des Moines Correct. and became the owner after working at the Register, publisher of the Register, owner of the Iowa Cubs. Correct. Exactly. So what could be better than exactly. that? No, and it's actually quite a charmed life. You know, he's the page one editor of of the Wall Street Journal, runs NBC News, wins a Pulitzer, uh, and then you know runs the runs the Des Moines Register, and 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 then and then moves into baseball. So, great life. So you re you kind of remade as as this uh, prodigy. You remade morning TV. Yeah. So what happened was the Today Show was just not doing very well, and uh, and you know and I was uh, I was put into this position of of trying to turn it around and I think that I think that what I did is uh, I was not afraid to, to try new things and to change things up and what I said to everybody was that I understood the tradition of the Today Show which went way back it was obviously it was one of the oldest shows in the history of television began in 1952 and uh, and so I told everybody, look, I understand the I tradition. Think there was a monkey in the cast. There at was that time. Uh, yeah. J. Fred Muggs. Yes. Um, actually, J. Fred Muggs wasn't there when the Today Show went on the air. Uh, J. Fred Muggs came in a few months after the start because the ratings weren't doing well, and they needed to bring in the monkey uh, to try to up the ratings. <laughs> so, um, but you Dave, didn't, you didn't reconsider bringing him back. Well, we we were thinking about something like that. But anyway, um, uh, actually, I'll tell you a funny story about that. We we, we digress is when I was running the Today Show, I had us do a piece on uh, whatever happened to J. Fred Muggs. And it turned out we found him, we think, uh, at, at an animal park <laughs> in, in somewhere in Florida. But anyway, Are there DNA tests? Yeah, well, or, yeah. it, it, I digress. But anyway, um, yeah, look, I always said that I understood the tra- uh, tradition of the Today Show, but I wasn't bound by it. And so what that meant was that, you know, look, I'm not going to do anything to embarrass the Today Show. But I'm not going to keep doing the same things we've been doing. You know, people would come up to me and they would say, well, we don't do it that way. And I would say, well, the way we've been doing it isn't working. And so, uh, and so you know, that gave us the ability to, to just throw out the, the playbook and try a lot of new things. And so what we did is we introduced 
uh, a really hard news uh, first half. No hour ads for show. 22 minutes. No ads for 22 Which minutes. Which is a tradition now. Now, now everybody does right. it. But but before that, it was you know heresy to even think right. about that. So we, we instituted a really hard news half hour, and then we came up with a lot of gimmicks, including you know where in the world is Matt Lauer, and we today throws a wedding and. Uh, outdoor concerts at the Today Show, and so we built this whole thing. Now, there were two events that also really helped us change the dynamic of the Today Show. Uh, the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995, I think we recognized early on that this was going to be a real cultural touch point, and we, uh, we covered it uh, intensely and, and did you know, went all in on coverage of this, which is a theme that I would later reprise at CNN when we would go all in on a big story. But the first time we ever did this was was on the O.J. Simpson trial. And Charlie Gibson was the anchor of GMA, and he took shots at us in, in the newspapers by saying, I can't believe how much uh, coverage of O.J. Simpson they're doing. And, and my response was, well, it's interesting, it's good, and the audience wants it. And then, and then, the, other, and then the next thing that happened was the 96 election. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, when, when I was supervising producer, it was the 92 election. Um, yeah, the first one was the 92 election when I took over. I'm sorry, not 96. Mm-hmm. 92 election. Yeah. And uh, that was an incredibly exciting election because there were three candidates, right? Ross and Ross Perot, Perot is Clinton the independent. And Bush, yeah. Right. And we actually had a tremendous in with Ross Perot. And so we recognized his popularity very early on. And we had Ross Perot on all the time before anybody else did. And the other thing is then we would start having Bill Clinton on for these hour-long interviews when the, when the history of interviews with candidates was you'd have him on for five minutes, okay? Mm-hmm. We had him on for an hour. And then he, we he, had him he on. He was uniquely qualified he was, to do an hour. He was. Yeah. He was. Okay, but we took advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. And then we'd have Bill Clinton on for two hours. So the entire Today <laughs> Show was two hours. We'd have Ross Perot on for an hour mm-hmm. or two hours. And so it was like... Nobody could believe that this is what the Today Show was doing, but they were talking about us. We were getting uh, we were getting notices. We were relevant in a way we hadn't been, and so that is how we changed up the Today Show. The other thing you did was you changed up the cast of the Today Show, and I wanted to ask you about that. When you're framing a show like that, particularly a morning show, how important is the the casting and how they relate to each other and how people relate to them? Yeah, well. You know, we always thought that that was the most important thing uh, in the show. It wasn't the stories we did or the two-hour interviews with the political candidate. Uh, the shows uh, lived and died on the chemistry with the with the hosts. You know, people are watching morning shows in their in their boxers and pajamas with toothpaste drooling out of their mouth. Uh, Attractive pi- picture. Exactly, eating, eating soggy cornflakes. <laughs> that, that's just the reality mm-hmm. of, of the time of day that the show is on and, and, uh, and the way they watch the program. So it's a very intimate uh, experience, much more so than any other kind of news program. So they, they, they have to want to spend time with these people, and the only, time you, only way you want to spend time with them is if they want to spend time with each other. So they had to get along. And so... You know, obviously, uh, we had several cast changes through the years on the Today Show. The first major one that we did was we brought in Katie Couric. Uh, again, remember, the, the show wasn't doing well, right. I mentioned. And, and so Katie uh, and Bryant had a pretty magnetic spark that worked incredibly well, and that was part of the turnaround. Then eventually, uh, Bryant uh, decided to move on himself. 
I think it was in January of 97, and we brought in Matt Lauer. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between Matt Lauer and Katie Couric was also quite dynamic. I have to ask you about this. You mentioned where in the world is Matt Lauer. And I don't, I know you guys are, were friends uh, and probably still are friends, but uh, it turns out that where in the world, sometimes he was where he wasn't supposed to be, doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, and I know you've said that you didn't know about any of that, but there, I think people are incredulous right. about that because you're a, such a such a involved right. leader. So, so you have to remember a couple of things. First of all, uh, I've been gone from any uh, daily interaction with Matt for 18 years. Mm-hmm. I, I left the Today Show at the end of 2000. Right. So, you know, really what I think most people have talked about with regard to what happened with Matt, uh, I think has, you know, pretty much uh, been since I was uh, not there. I, as I said, I left in 2000. If anything was going on prior to that, um, I was unaware of it. As I said, you know, he came uh, as the anchor in in 97. um, And, you know, in those three or four years that I was there, I I saw absolutely no evidence of that, heard uh, nothing of of the sort. Uh, You know, he got married uh, in somewhere in the middle of there, like in 98. And that was, you know, that was uh, what what you know i thought he was focused on um so you were at some event and there was some body kind of casting couch jokes uh and uh at uh at one point that intimated that oh the roast uh there was a friars club roast yeah Yeah, there's a friars club roast um i don't know some sometime in the mid 2008 9 Mm -hmm. era that was Um, that was Later. Yeah, no, yeah, no, we, we, uh, I think there were a lot of people who made jokes about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Matt, um, but, you know, that was the, that was the nature of a roast, right? Mm-hmm. It was a Friars Club roast, and so I think you have to understand that everybody gets made fun of like that. But like I said, uh, you know, I, I, I never, uh, was aware or was. Was that a problem aware. in the industry generally? You know, I, I mean, Look, I think I think you can't you can't paint it with a, a broad brush, and and each of these incidents that we've become aware of, I think, are are different in and of themselves. Listen, obviously, uh, I you can't condone any of this behavior, and uh, and as I've said, um, if if we had been aware of any of it, we would have dealt with it immediately. Um, you know, uh, it strikes me that what Donald Trump said in the Access Hollywood tape, vile as it was, reflected not just his own thinking, but it, it was a it it was a, a, a more broadly held kind of thing, which is that guys felt like who were stars, as he said, felt like they could have their way. Well, I think there's uh, always been a uh, you know there's always been this thing about. Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and casting couches and mm-hmm. and and stars um, that that has had uh, you know that kind of uh, sentiment uh, as wrong as it is. I mean, I think that there is a a long held uh, you know uh, sentiment that 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 was okay. It clearly was not okay. You know, now I think what Donald Trump said on the Access Hollywood thing was uh, was 
even over the line for that kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, thinking. But look, you know, um, if you look back at the advertising agency, uh, advertising world that was portrayed in, in the Mad, Mad Men, Men yeah, era, yeah. and yeah. you look back at old Hollywood, and you look back at, at uh, television uh, and media and movies, sure, ha- has there always been a... Uh, has there always been a, a male-oriented uh, uh, belief that they were uh, entitled? Unfortunately, yeah, that was the that was the world that existed. You think that it's changed now with well, all do, of this with the Me Too stuff? I do. I do think that there has been a tremendous uh, change. Look, I, I think there was a a change over time. The Mad Men era, you know, uh, uh, wasn't the same as it always was, but there was still bad behavior. I think the same thing was true in media. But I do think there's been a tremendous change, and there's much more uh, recognition that. Uh, uh, bad behavior was going on and could not be tolerated. You went through uh, a couple of ordeals uh, during the 90s, even as you were uh, sort of the king of morning television and you start moving up the NBC ladder. 31 years old, you're diagnosed with colon cancer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was 31 uh, and out of the blue, no family history, nothing just a complete freak uh i i was diagnosed with colon cancer ironically you had done a lot on the show because katie's husband was battling that wasn't that about the same time yeah i mean i think that uh i think that actually came a little later Mm -hmm. um so but it was ironic that katie uh you know who was so we were so close and and had grown up together like that on the show then had to endure uh, the same kind of uh, illness and tragically her husband uh, found his colon cancer too late and he did not survive if anything I was incredibly fortunate that, that you know my colon cancer at the age of 31 uh, we got it uh, I did have to then go through nine months of chemotherapy because it had spread uh, but, but it I, came back right but I was you know fortunate and then what happened was when I was 34 in 1999 on a routine uh, checkup, uh, discovered for the second time that I had colon cancer, and it was not a recurrence. It was a second. Uh-huh. It was a whole second episode, and so clearly now I'm 34. I've had colon cancer twice. It's clear that I have this propensity to grow tumors in my colon. So what we did is because uh, they were going to keep coming back, it was clear. So uh, the surgeons decided to remove as much of my colon as they could without giving me a colostomy bag. And so they took out 90% of my mm. colon. And, uh, um, and uh, Let me ask you something. thankfully, I, I have had nothing since. You, you were, th- as you mentioned, 31, 34, had small children. Yeah. Um, what were you thinking at the time? How, how frightening was it? Yeah, listen, I, 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 I still to this day remember the phone call I got from the doctor to tell me I had cancer. I couldn't believe it. Um, it was an incredibly uh, frightening experience. I remember the day the doctor came to my hospital bed and told me that it had spread and I was going to have to undergo chemotherapy. And uh, I, I cried, you know, again. Um, you know, it was an incredibly uh, uh, harrowing experience and, and very, very difficult. But I read that you uh, arranged to have your yeah. chemo on Fridays so that you could... Right. not miss any any work because you, 
the quote I saw was, I didn't want anybody to think I couldn't do the job. Yeah, so it is true. The first time that I had cancer uh, and I had to undergo the chemotherapy, I scheduled it Friday uh, late afternoon, uh, went to the hospital, was hooked up to an IV, uh, took the drip, and, uh, and then went home and slept uh, till about Sunday afternoon um, and uh, t- till it wore off. And then got up Monday morning and went and did the Today Show. And I did not want anybody to think I couldn't do the job. And I didn't... Uh, Were you worried that someone would take the job? No, it wasn't that I was worried that anybody was going to take the job. It was I didn't want anybody to think that, that this was going to get me down. I wasn't going to let uh, this cancer get in the way. I wasn't going to let it beat me. And uh, and so I arranged uh, for, for me to be able to take care of myself and to do my job. And, you know, I think that goes back to the competitive thing we were talking about early is that... You know, I was not gonna let I was not gonna let this beat me, and uh, um, you know, and it was hard. It was hard. I got hospitalized one time during the chemotherapy because they gave me too much, which is what they try to do because they want to give you as much as you can. And you know, um, I do remember uh, in '96, my surgery was on Halloween. I remember watching the Halloween costume contest before on the Today Show before I went into surgery. And then I was in the hospital for election night of, uh, of 96 that I was supposed to be producing uh, for NBC. And uh, I watched it from my hospital room. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember that quite vividly. And were you thinking, not that camera, this camera? <laughs> I think, uh, I, I don't know that I, I was, uh, was, was critiquing it, but I remember that I wasn't there. Yeah. And then, and then eventually, uh, did you ever think I'm going to die? Um, I was worried about it, and uh, yeah, you know, look, uh, I, I feel like I've, um, I feel like I've stared at the possibility of dying a couple times in my life, and uh, you know, look, I, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but. I I have had an incredible life, and I have led a charmed life, and I've I've uh, I, I've had a lot of success. There have been some low points, but I've had a lot of success, and I've got and four great kids and and everything. But I um, I have been tested with uh, illnesses and, um, and not just that, but Bell's palsy. Well, you've had heart surgery and so on. So look, I mean, if you really want to list them, it's been a, it's been, it's been really hard. I've had colon cancer twice, and I've had Bell's palsy. I've had open heart surgery. I've had five kidney stones. I've had gout. I've had, uh, I've had three knee surgeries, um, uh, and you know, and I'm probably leaving out some stuff. How did how did that all that change you? Well, I mean, look, I, uh, you know, I do understand what's important, even though I still remain competitive, and and you know, sometimes I, I, uh, you know, can uh, be still hyper competitive. I do understand how lucky I am to be alive, and I do, I do understand that. Um, I think there's many times when I probably uh, could have died. Uh, through any of the colon cancers or any of the heart issues I've had, uh, I know I'm lucky to be alive, and that has given me tremendous perspective. I don't take any of this for granted, and uh, I've led a great life, but I am lucky, and I'm lucky to be alive. You, uh, in the 2000s, 
uh, once you recovered that, you, you had this sort of, you, you made this transition, you moved up the ladder at NBC, you went out to LA uh, and took over their entertainment division. Uh, that was not an un, un, uh, unvarnished success for you, and you went out there. First of all, you weren't very well received. Well, I, I was the, uh, you know, the, I don't think that Hollywood really understood why this news guy from New York was coming to run an entertainment division. And, you know, that's why Jack Welch at GE and, and Bob Wright at, at NBC wanted me to go there. They didn't want a, a creature of Hollywood. But it, it, it set up a, a relationship that, you know, was, was not perfect. And uh, there probably was an element of you being who you are. Yeah. Telling the Hollywood people that just as you did the people at the Today Show, you know what? You guys aren't exactly doing it right. I got a better idea. I'm going to try it. That probably wasn't well received. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, listen, I uh, I probably... Uh, I don't want to use the word impudent, but... No, I mean, listen, I, I, I acknowledge I, I went out there. Um, uh, I've, al- I've always acknowledged through my life that I've been a little cocky. Um, I, w- I think I went out there with a little bit of an attitude uh, that was probably uh, unhelpful to the situation. And, um, you know, I think we did a lot of good things. I think I made a lot of mistakes. Um, uh, and, and I think the, the community at that time um, uh, didn't quite know what to make of me and wasn't necessarily rooting for me. I am going to leave aside the the one of the big decisions you made which was to uh start a show called the apprentice uh for a couple of minutes here because it leads into a longer discussion about the star of the show uh but um you went through you you kept rising until you were the ceo of nbc um you made uh you made a uh some decisions that got a lot of attention. One was about late night TV, putting Jay Leno on at 10, moving Conan in there. Didn't work out. Correct. Didn't work out. And you, uh, and Comcast bought NBC. You lost, your, you gave up your job, but you- no, pro- no, 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 I didn't give up my job. They asked me to leave. All right, good. I was trying to be polite no, about okay. it. Why, why, why would you be polite? I, uh, I was you signed my freaking paycheck, No, nah, it's okay. No. Uh, listen, listen, I mean, I don't think that they asked me to leave because the late night debacle happened, which it did. I'm not, I don't ever deny that. I think they asked me to leave because they, they bought the company and they had their person who they wanted to run it. Absolutely. But to be clear, I was asked to leave. You were 45 years old. You, you were a prodigy. Now you're 45 years old. And You've done. Heard, yeah. So tell me about that. First of all, there were a lot of people cheering because nobody likes the prodigy. Nobody likes the, the, the upstart who does it better. Nobody, and nobody likes being challenged. But, uh, but there were, this is a competitive business. Yeah. I know, listen, man, I'm from politics, so I understand this completely. People, you know, they, they don't necessarily celebrate your successes and they don't necessarily mourn your failures. Right. And you failed on a very big stage there in the sense that you were asked to leave. How, how did you process that, uh, the ultimately competitive yeah. guy? Yeah. So, look, I mean, uh, listen, it was, a hard, uh, it was a hard time for me. I had spent my entire career and life at NBC, right? I went there. Remember, I got the job the day I right. graduated, went to work there in August of 1986, 
and uh, and spent the next 25 years there. It was the only thing I knew. It was uh, the only building I had ever walked into to work at, right, uh, in New York. And, and it was the only company I'd ever worked for. It, uh, it was my life, right? So that was hard. Uh, that was hard to, um, you know, accept that that, that was uh, over. Um, what about the whole thing? But you had these such stunning success yeah. at such an early age. What about something that turned out badly like this? Well, well look, I, you know, I, I don't really look at it that it turned out badly. I look at it that it was an incredible 25-year run, and at the end, uh, the company was sold and I was asked to leave. Um, uh, so I, I don't really look, like, look at it that it was an ignominious end. I look at it as, you know what? The company was sold, and and I was asked to leave. But I was asked to leave. I, I'm not in denial mm-hmm. about that. Um, you know, if I had been king of and the hill, f- they probably wouldn't have asked me to leave. And do you, I know you went to work uh, with Katie on we, a I, show that she did. We did a daytime show at ABC. F- yeah, for about a year, um, I went there. But no, listen, I, I and listen, that didn't that didn't do well. Were you just trying to figure out? I didn't know what my next move was going to be. Listen, mm-hmm. I was. I, as I said, I was 45 years old, and I had pretty much, you know, because I had had a lot of success at a very young age, I had done a ton of things, right? And in the media business, there wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of mountains left to climb. You know, my, 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 the one thing that I still wanted to do in life was, you know, go home and, and run the Miami Dolphins, um, which I tell everybody that's the one thing I, I, I would leave anything to go do. But that wasn't, that wasn't in the cards either. Um, so I didn't know what I was going to do, and so it was a t- it was uh, a little bit of a, a strange time. For the first time in my life, when I woke up, I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do, and uh, and that was hard. Um, that was hard. You know, eventually, uh, eventually, um, CNN comes knocking, and you know, uh, CNN was looking for a new leader, and I was interested in it. And the reason I was interested. Um, even though a lot of people thought, well, why would he go to CNN? It's so much smaller. He, he, he ran a huge media company. Why would he just go want to go run one, one channel? And, and I never looked at it that way because, you know, I, wasn't, I don't need to impress anybody or, you know, the size of my title or the size of my office is not what defines me. And I wanted to do something that, that I was excited to do. And CNN really interested in me. Interested me for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I thought it was uh, big. I thought it was important. It also, was a turnaround, and it was broken. Yeah. Exactly. So it was big. It was important. It was broken. And I thought that was an opportunity for me. And then the the other thing was that it was you know it was news and it was live. And there was nothing I loved more than live television and news. And so all of those factors made it such that I was very interested in the job. And then I was uh, fortunate enough that CNN was interested in me. And you made a bunch of changes. I, I know you. One of them was very basic. You went back to this is oh, the CNN. First, yeah, the James yeah. Earl Jones yeah, thing. The first you changed thing, graphics. You did. The, well, the, the first thing. The first thing I did was was brought back the James Earl Jones. This is CNN uh, sig- signature audio uh, because I thought that that signified CNN, and I thought it was just a statement. And I did that on day one, and I was 
you know, and th- that was the first thing I did. And you brought and you brought documentaries and original programming and, uh, to evenings, but th- there was still it was still CNN is was feast or famine. Yeah, and when well, what breaking people, news happens, what, real, right? Well, what people said about CNN at that time was that uh, you know it was it was pretty much like the spare tire in the trunk. You only brought it out when you needed it, and uh, and and when there was uh, you know big breaking news. And, you know, what we needed to do was we needed to make CNN more relevant all of the time, not just when there was big breaking news. That's part of why we started the original series and the documentaries. Uh, And it's also why we started then just going all in on whatever the big story was. And you know, sometimes that, you got ridiculed for that. We, we did. We uh, we did the Malaysian know. Air thing. John Stewart had, went to town on you on yeah. that. So so obviously I had confidence uh, that it was the right thing to do, and I think it has been borne out over time that it was the right thing to do because what it did was bring audience back to CNN, and that's what we needed to do. And I think what people who criticized it didn't understand was that the media was changing, and the way people were were learning about what was going on was from their phone. And they were really getting their headlines and their news from their phone. And what they were do- coming to, to television for was to go deep into whatever the big story that was going on and that interested them. They didn't want, it, they didn't want or need a wheel of news from, from television anymore. And so that's why we decided to go all in on, for instance, the missing airliner. I thought everybody gets on a plane, and, and how, can, how can a plane just disappear? I can find my iPhone, you know, down the block if I leave it somewhere. How can a big Boeing airliner, you know, just disappear? And so I thought that there was tremendous interest uh-huh. in it, and we were right. And that's why we went deep on it. There were a lot of people who were critical of it. I get it. That's fine. But I still feel we did the right Let's thing. Let's talk about your relationship with Donald Trump. Okay. Because in 2001, you, you, you guys both had a need. You needed a big hit. And he needed a way out of what was a lost decade for him, four bankruptcies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he was not in great shape. And uh, Mark Burnett, a producer, came in and, and pitched the idea of The Apprentice starring Donald Trump. Right. Tell me what appealed to you about that. You must have known Trump from your time in New York. So I did know, uh, I did know Trump from, from my years in New York, and he had been on the Today Show numerous times. And, and, and so we, we had a relationship. When Mark Burnett pitches uh, uh, this show, which is basically he had done Survivor, he pitches us Survivor uh, in a different jungle, the jungle of, of Wall Street right. and, and New York, I immediately, and, and he attaches Donald Trump to it, I immediately got it. In a way that I don't think my competitors at the other entertainment networks in Los Angeles understood, they were all from Los Angeles. I was from New York. Yes, we wanted a big hit, uh, uh, a big reality show, so that appealed to us. But I understood the appeal of Donald Trump in a way that I don't think anybody else did. I knew for a fact that if we bought this show, even if it didn't work, Donald Trump was a publicity magnet. And that he would bring us so much free promotion and marketing in a way that we could never spend enough money to get it marketed. Because I knew that he was a tabloid king. And that the, the New York Post and the New York Daily News would put him on the cover of those tabloids all the time. And I'm not sure that, that the folks who were in Los Angeles appreciated and that. And you made him the center of the show, ultimately. Well, he, was, were, he the, was. That was the but pitch. But the, the whole boardroom yes. thing was, well, you, you said, torque that up. Let's put him at the center of the... Well, 
Well, that that is true. I'm sure that appealed to him as well. Well, of course. But w- okay, so <laughs> let me just finish. But you're right about that. So 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 we told Mark Burnett he couldn't leave the NBC studio a lot until we got the show, and we bought it. And I turned out to be right that Donald Trump became our best publicist for the show because uh, he would just call the newspapers all the time. Right. He would call them and say, we're the number one show in television. Now, we weren't the number one show in television. We were doing great. Yeah. But, by the way, that worked for us at the time because if he, if he wants to... That's a well, habit that it, continues to well, this it day. Does. It does. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, obviously we, we recognize. But, yes, the, the, the scene in The Apprentice where the boardroom, we recognized early on that that was where the heat was. And so original pitch was that that was going to be the last 10 minutes of the show. But, you know, he was charismatic and dynamic in that boardroom. And so we told Mark Burnett, you know, we actually want it to be 25 minutes. And so the show turned in to be the, the whole Donald Trump boardroom. Was he playing a character? Of course. He, he, he was an actor. He, you know, and, and he was, you know, he torqued it up. And, and, you know, he was the caricaturized version of Donald Trump. But he was an actor. And he loved it. And, uh, and he was good at it. And you tell me about your relationship with him. He was one. He was a big star for you. You're the executive. You you must have. There Listen, must have I was running NBC Entertainment, and that was our number one show. Mm-hmm. And so he was the star of the show. And so you know he became. Uh, again, I already had a prior relationship mm-hmm. with him, but you know, uh, we 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 became even closer as a result of that. How often did you talk to him? I would talk to him several times a week because all he wanted to do was ever call and talk about ratings. The ratings. That's all he ever wanted to talk about. <laughs> And, you know, and he would send me back in that day, there were faxes, remember fax machines? He would send me faxes of, of newspaper clippings and things like that. And uh, and so, you know, we would talk quite often and, and I would come back to New York quite often and I would see him. And uh, it was a it was a really you good wanted You wanted to actually broadcast his wedding to Melania. Is that right? No, that is not true. He wanted us to oh, broadcast. I, I knew someone did. Wedding. I couldn't figure out who. Um, he wanted us to broadcast the wedding. To Melania. You were there, I assume. I did attend. Uh, I remember we flew overnight from from Los Angeles with a with a big group of uh, folks who who knew mm-hmm. Trump uh, well uh, from The Apprentice. We attended uh, the wedding at Mar-a-Lago, as has been well documented by now. It was quite the star-studded event. Uh, but yes, he wanted us to to broadcast it, and he wanted us to pay him to broadcast it. <laughs> we said no, thank you. But and and you were at Ivanka's wedding as well. I was at uh, Jared and Ivanka's wedding as a guest of really Donald. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't know Jared and Ivanka all that well. I knew them a little bit. Uh, but Donald uh, invited me. Uh, as his and guest. did he talk to you when he was thinking of running for president? No, he didn't talk to me about any of that. Um, and I. Um, I never really took it very seriously the first few times he flirted with it. And when he came down the escalator and did his thing, what was your reaction? So my reaction was, uh, uh, you know, the the contents of that speech aside uh, when he announced, was that, look, I think that I recognized his popular appeal. I think that I understood from The Apprentice and watching him and all of that, that there was a, there was a uh, something about Trump and his um, and and his character uh, that was popular and I thought would would work and I do think that that's one of the reasons that that I uh, had CNN pay attention uh, right away to Donald Trump because I think at a time if you go back the first couple months most national news media organizations did not take it very seriously 
CNN did right away, and we turned out to be right. Um, well, some you know, would argue that it was a that that it's a chicken and egg thing. That part of what CNN did was help. Yeah, uh, I, I, I I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, he announces, comes down the escalator, announces, and three weeks later, he's number one in the polls in the Republican uh, Party, and he and he holds on to that till he becomes a Republican nominee. So he was he was the favorite among that entire uh, field three weeks in. So I don't think that CNN made him number one in three weeks. Okay, I think that he he had that appeal, and 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 we were covering the front runner. We would cover the front runner uh, disproportionately. Uh, in in any race, so I I, I don't I Jeff, don't Jeff, buy into you, that. you said something earlier in our discussion here that struck me, and it, it leads to a question about this and television generally. You said uh, the audience wants it, uh, you, and that is obviously something that's always in your head. Donald Trump understands that if you light yourself on fire, that's good TV. So look, you understand that as well, and you needed that that was good well, for CNN, was it not? Well, look, I'm not going to apologize. I think what a lot of people want is for, you know, people to say that you do you shouldn't uh, uh, you should apologize for um, giving the audience what they're interested in. This goes back to the plane and and we took a lot of heat for the poop cruise at one time. Listen, I think what we have always done, whether it was at the Today Show or CNN, is we've never been above what the audience is interested in. And I think this idea that, you know, you should only feed the audience spinach and you should tell them uh, what's important, I, I reject that. Well, there is this tension between the but I think television, both. television news or news generally as a trust and as a business. And how do well, you balance those things? But we're both. I mean, listen, I think that you cannot pretend, uh, you know, that we're not a business, right? And, uh, and by the way, doing journalism costs money. And it costs a lot of money. And so you're running a business. And I'm, I don't think anyone should apologize for that. At the same time, uh, we're running a journalistic organization, and we should, do, we should do what's important. And we should also do what's interesting. And, and uh, I don't apologize for those two things. And I think they can coexist. And I think, if anything, over the last five, six years, that's what we've brought to CNN. And I think it's a mix of what's important and what's popular. Do you think, uh, looking back, that you uh, would you have made the same decisions relative to the coverage of Trump, giving him, uh, you know, cover, covering his events yeah. uh, as extensively as you did? Yeah. So I think that we made a mistake in airing as many of his uh, rallies live and unedited as we did. Uh, I've said that before, uh, and I've acknowledged it. And I, I said we made a mistake. Now, What's interesting to me is that our competitors did the same thing, and they've never acknowledged that they made a mistake. That's okay. I don't need them to do that. For I, I only control what we do. Yes, we made a mistake. I do not believe that's why he's president of the United States. A lot of people want to uh, assign that blame mm-hmm. to us and to me. Um, if only we had that much power, uh, especially on the Republican side. Um, I do not believe that's why he's president of the United States, but I do think we made a mistake. He... Um has singled CNN out. I mean, that's no secret. And I wonder sometimes, you know, MSNBC, and you were there when MSNBC uh, uh, became as MSNBC, and you identified then that there needed to be a liberal sort of counterpart to Fox, and that was a niche market. Uh, it's still that. Yeah. And yet 
he never talks about MSNBC. He always talks about CNN. Do you, is that personal to you? How much of it involves you? And how much of it involves him wanting to decommission CNN as some a place where sort of swing voters might go yeah. that is credible? Yeah. So I think it's both. Um, and I'm not ducking the question. Yeah. I really do genuinely think it's both reasons. Look, he obviously uh, he, he attacks CNN. He attacks CNN for a couple of reasons. One, we're relevant, right? If we weren't relevant, if we didn't matter, he'd just ignore us. Um, he understands. Uh, he understands that CNN matters. He understands that CNN matters in the United States and around the world. Uh, and, uh, and he understands that CNN has a disproportionate amount of swing and independent voters um, that, it, it, frankly, MSNBC doesn't have and that he would like. So for all of those reasons, uh, CNN is important. I also think that, that CNN, to him, is the, the, the institutions that he attacks the most, the New York Times, in the media. The New York Times, Saturday Night Live, and CNN are frankly the, the, the media institutions that he grew up with in New York that he cared about and whose respect he coveted. So I think that's, that's a part of it. And then I think the third piece of it has to do with me. And um, the fact is we've had this long, you know, 20 plus year relationship uh, that for a long time was uh, uh, quite strong. And, um, and, you know, Donald Trump did not understand in the end that just because we were friends uh, didn't mean he wasn't going to be subjected to the proper scrutiny. He didn't understand. He, he thought CNN should give him a pass um, because we were friends. He thought CNN should be like Fox News and just, you know, uh, uh, give him... Uh, glowing coverage all the time listen it's my opinion that if he he should get the coverage that that that's appropriate and that he deserves but but he's not going to get anything just because we're friends and so i think that he uh he does hold that against me and cnn and i think it's the combination of all of those reasons cnn matters it's relevant it's an institution he grew up with and he doesn't understand why i'm not fully loyal are all of the reasons why he disproportionately attacks CNN. So, uh, so you're, um, there is a there is an element of disapprobation in the in some in particularly among you know anchors who have shows and so on that are that is expressed. Um, how much do you encourage that? Discourage that? And are there limits to that? That are you worried about a line being crossed? Yeah. So um, I think that our job at CNN is to tell the truth and to, and to stand on the side of pro-truth. Uh, I think the problem is in this day and age, I do understand that sometimes when you're pro-truth, it comes off as anti-Trump. In no way should we set out ever to be anti-Trump. Um, we should always set out to be pro-truth. And all I encourage our shows and our anchors to be is to hold those in power accountable and to tell the truth. If that, if that comes off as anti-Trump, uh, then, then that's, uh, that's just the byproduct of being pro-truth. He has made CNN one of his targets, and you became a target when that bomber sent out 
his bombs. You put out a pretty strong statement, uh, appropriately, I think, about that. Did you call him? No. No. Listen, uh, you know, we've endured for years now his comments about the media and CNN in particular and the attacks on CNN. And as a result, the safety of our people for several years now has been, uh, has been a real issue. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves in the position where uh, some lunatic was sending bombs mm-hmm. to the people who work for us. And, that, uh, and, and at the same time on that same day, uh, the press secretary of the, of the White House put out a statement uh, in, in which she condemned uh, all of uh, those attacks on everybody but CNN. And, you know, at, at some point, frankly, uh, I thought enough was enough. And but because you have a personal relationship with him, I, I wondered whether you felt like picking up the, call, uh, the phone and saying, you know, what the hell are you doing? Well, but, but uh, if I felt that that would change uh, the way he has behaved, I would do it in a second, obviously. Um, you know, I have no uh, issue with picking up the phone, but I think he has proven, uh, because we've, we've said it time and again, that these words are dangerous. And, uh, and are going to result in something like somebody sending bombs. Uh, and, uh, and he knows that, and his people know that, and yet they've continued to do it. And frankly, I think it is one of the most uh, destructive things that he has done. And listen, it's okay. I can take all the criticism you want. I've taken criticism my whole career. It's okay. But you know, when you are... Um, when you're inciting your followers to uh, uh, to do things because because he's saying that CNN sucks and isn't fair to him, well, enemies of the people is a strong and, phrase. And when you're when you're calling the media and CNN enemies of the people, you know you're crossing a line, and and that's why I put out the statement I did uh, because enough is enough. Are you worried that it's going to get more frantic as the 2020 approaching? Look, I, I think that uh, uh, it's hard to believe that it could get more frantic, but but it might. Um, I can't let you go without asking you two things. Where is where is television and cable television in particular going to be in five years from now? I've got kids who uh, you know are cord cutters. Um, yeah, there's a voracious appetite for, for appetite for content, but not necessarily for uh, for cable. And then I need to ask you where you think you're going to be in five years. So, uh, with regard to cable and and television, I mean, listen. First of all, nobody knows for sure. So anybody who tells you definitively where where this industry is going, uh, run away from. But having said that, look, the, the trends are clear and obvious, and that uh, traditional. I, I think television will still exist and, and television will still be around, but I think it will uh, live events like news and sports um, will be uh, the things that will endure the longest and, and be around. And it's clear that that uh, when it comes to entertainment, people want to consume it when they want to consume it, where they want to consume it, how they want to consume it. And I think that trend will only continue. And with regard to where I'll be in five years, um, uh, you had a chance to leave to potentially take over ESPN, which 
you're a big sports guy. Yeah. That was a bad, the timing wasn't right for you. But well, to be clear, I was never offered. The, no, the I understand. Um, look, I don't, been an I don't know. Kind of I don't know for sure where I'll be. But here's the two things that that uh, I do know is if the uh, Miami Dolphins call, that's where I'll be. Or number. You've two, said this twice now, and I know I'm they're. To send I know they're big listeners of yeah, my podcast. Exactly. So and number two, this could be short your and career two, here. Look, uh, um, uh, I I still harbor somewhere in my uh my gut uh that i'm still very interested in politics Mm -hmm. and i would you turned down an opportunity to work for al gore in 2000 you've talked in the past about potentially running for office so i'm still interested in that Mm -hmm. and uh um it's something that i would consider interesting well, give me a call if you're thinking about it. You know somebody who can I help? Do. I, can, okay. I, I do. You can put me in touch with the right I people? I can. I can, yeah. Jeff Zucker, uh, so good to sit down with you. Appreciate you. For you to sit in one place for an hour is an extraordinary accomplishment, and I'm, I'm so grateful only, that you did it. I would only do it for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.